0: Mm -hmm. Hello and welcome to Sleeve Notes, the show where I talk to some of our biggest and fastest rising stars from the world of music. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: Back then, long time ago, when grass was green
0: And Welcome to the latest show. Today, I'm joined by author Aaron Badgley. Welcome to the show.
2: This is an honor to be here. Thank you very much. I'm really happy to be here.
0: Well, I've got a little bit of confession to make Uh-oh. because we're here to talk about your your new book, Dark Horse Records. But it's a little bit of an indulgence for me because I'm a huge Beatle fan together, apart and anything even remotely related to them. So, you know, it, it, it's one for me. <laughs>
2: Well, that's how I got into Dark Horse Records. I, I, I When I was about 12 years old, my mother was trying to discourage me from collecting. And she said she was trying to do reverse psychology. She said, well, you know, if you collect the Beatles, you have to get all the Apple stuff and all the stuff they played on. So I went, OK, challenge accepted. <laughs>
0: I mean, the one question that has to be asked is Have you done it? No.
2: <laughs> I wish I would like to say yes, but unfortunately, no. I'm still, well, you know what? Not unfortunately. I love collecting. I love looking. I love going to record fairs. I love talking to people like you who collect and are passionate about music. And, uh, you know, I, I'm having a great time. So, no, not yet. But I'm working on it. I'm working on it. I
0: think it's everybody's dream, in my mind anyway, to write a book. What made oh. you write one about Dark Horse Records?
2: Well, like you, I'm a big Beatle fan and I love there's so many great Beatle books and books about George Harrison. But they always tend to skip over a segment of Harrison's life and career, which is from material world to maybe somewhere in England or even cloud nine. And Dark Horse Records was a really important part of Harrison's career. And I felt like it deserved a, a bit. Of, and so I was looking around for books about it and there wasn't one around. So I thought, well, you know what? I may as well just go ahead and write it myself. I, it, it's it's a fascinating period of Harrison's career in terms of he's got this label, he's releasing albums on Apple, and then it's just he toured with Ravi Shankar, and and it's it was so interesting that I just couldn't um, resist it. So and I you know it's and I loved doing the research. I, I would get lost in all the old magazines, and it was great.
0: But where would you start?
2: Uh, uh, apologizing to my wife? No. um... <laughs> <laughs> you know, I I started by looking into um, Splinter. Um, I love Splinter. I think they were kind of the bad finger of Dark Horse. Really good duo. They put out three stellar albums. Well, four if you count the one not on Dark Horse. And um, I just started looking at who played on the albums. And I thought, I wonder if these guys would give me any of their time. And Tom Scott, lovely guy, Chris Bedding, who played on their second album, and then I started just talking to them and they kept saying, you know, this should really be captured into a book. And I like, OK, yeah, all right. So then I just kept digging and then I went through Record Mirror and NME and Rolling Stone and Billboard and started finding all these little tidbits here and there and tried to sew it all together to a book. So that's it just started by a love of the muse. I really think that um, when I started the book, everything on Dark Horse was out of print now, of course. It's all, timing is everything, right? Everything kind of came into print as I was getting the book to the publisher and I thought, oh, that's fortuitous but at the time I kept thinking a lot of these artists, Splinter, Henry McCulloch put out just fantastic music that really should be heard, you know?
1: Dirty old hole in the side of the road for the man who cleans the streets Open pop doors where the working class goes at night Written on walls where the cats never crawl For the glass along the top
0: advocates there are so many Beatles books out there about the band when they're together when they're apart about the breakup about Apple everything was there a need was there a room for another book
2: I think there's yeah I think there's always room for new books I just finished Kenneth Womack's book about Mal Evans for example which was a, a, a great read and I you know could not put that book down and um I think if someone can come up with a different angle and uh I've read the books on Apple Records and I love them. There's about four or five, and they're so good. I always think there's a there's a guy named Bruce Spiser who's out of um, Louisiana, and he he puts out these killer books too. I think there's was there a need? I hope so. I mean, I I think that people kind of I've had great feedback saying we've been waiting for years to read this, and I remember talking to I was really lucky because I got to talk to members of Giva and Splinter. Ravi Shankar's orchestra, and they were all kind of like, oh, thanks for remembering us. This is really neat that you even know who we are. And I just thought, oh, no, of course I know who you are. This is great, you know. So I I hope there was a need for it. I I like to think there is, yeah. One thing
0: that impressed me particularly about the book is... There's no sensationalism in there. There's no gossip in there. It draws you in just through the, the human interest and the and the facts that you present and the great amount of people that you got to talk to as well.
2: Yeah, thank you for that, and thank you very much. You you got great questions, by the way. Um, thank you. I I did that on purpose. And in fact, I'll tell you one publisher that I spoke to before the book was published said, "We'll publish this if you can put more in about this and this addiction." And I was, I'm not. That's not what I'm writing about. I'm really writing about uh, George Harrison's. George Harrison was a very giving individual. He gave of himself, his time. And I really wanted to focus on the label, the music that was made. And and I don't want to say, this, this may sound negative, but why didn't this stuff sell? So I was fascinated by, holy smokes, you know, you look at 74 and John Denver's huge and, you know, England Dan and John Ford Coley and Brad, why didn't Splinter become massive? And I, because I, in my head, they should have been. So I thank you for that because I didn't want to get into the whole. Uh, I, I I I consciously stayed away from that. And in fact, talking to all the people I talked to, they were really appreciative of that because I remember what Tom Scott said. I suppose you want all the the stories of debauchery. I said, not really. No, I'm not interested. I, I like to know about the sax solo one. Listen to what the man said. I know that's not dark horse, but let's start there, shall we? <laughs> so I just I love the music, and I I really do, and it and it's. That's kind of where I'm at all the time, right?
3: So if you see me come up
0: See that by the smile on your face, it is a subject that you love. How did you get it? You spoke about your mum and you know collecting when you were ten or twelve. How did you get into it in the first place?
2: When I was a really little kid, my brother—I mean, I'm a little like four or five. My brother was dating a woman up the street. We lived in a small town, and she loved the Beatles. She was mad on the Beatles. Her name was Diane. She kept buying me Beatle records because she she because she wanted to spread the joy of Beatles. But she, I also would go. She babysit me, and she said I really liked Can't Buy Me Love. So um, she bought me when I was five, <laughs> Revolver, and I just, you know, you get sucked into that music at an early age. It becomes part of your DNA. And then when I was about 10 or 11, the, my brother, who was dating Diane, would come home from university, and he'd bring me an album once a month, and he'd say, okay, what we're going to do, was, bear in mind, I'm 10 or 11, we're going to turn off the lights, we're going to put on the album, we're going to listen to it, we're not going to talk, we're going to focus on the music. Ah, that was it. <laughs> you know, so... Then when I started, I got my first Beatle book when I was eleven or twelve, and I discovered there was this whole world of British pressings. Because I'm Canadian, so we had all the American pressings. And also I was like, "Holy smokes! Did you know there's no instrumentals on A Hard Day's Night in England? I gotta get that." Then I discovered like Wonderwall and and all these great albums. Like Wonderwall was my one of my favorite albums, still is. It's just a brilliant album. So just by my family and my friends buying me Beatles records and 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 books, and then I kind of just got massive. I mean. Massively hooked on the Beatles, but then music in general, because you said something earlier on about John and Ringo would be, or George and Ringo would be on Harry Nielsen's album, Son of Schmielsen, and I'd, I'd buy it and I'd go, This Nielsen guy's great. This is fantastic. And then, I'd, of course, I had to get all of Nielsen's albums, you know, much to my mother, my now my wife's chagrin. It just, and then, then you know, you, you he would mention someone on the inner sleeve, and you go, Oh, I should check out this guy's records. And it becomes a really, as they say, a dangerous rabbit hole, right?
0: I'm glad to know it's not just me.
2: <laughs> no. <laughs> I used to think it was me. <laughs> now you got you got a cousin over here doing the exact same thing still, to this day, man, to this day.
0: <laughs> One question that I'm not sure you're even going to be able to answer, because I don't think I could, is yeah. what is it about the Beatles?
2: Yeah. Uh, I tr- I've, You know what, Michael? I've, I've explored that in my own head for the last 50 years. And I, I think it comes down to their engagement with their audience. I find that all their music was always, you know, very welcoming. And even as so, like you know, Venus and Mars starting off with welcome. Well, Paul's always welcoming you to an album. Other than Ram, that's another story. Although I love Ram, but the first thing is, you know, piss off or a piece or whatever he says. But um, I think the Beatles just kind of, for me, they were this. Uh, the music and the lyrics just kind of drew me in and took me places that other music didn't take me to. And, and as a little kid, as a teenager, as, and, and again, I got into all the current music, well, except disco, I'll be honest. Um, other than disco, I was, I was up on things, but you know, like I love prog rock and I love proko harem, but there's just something with the Beatles that you put it on. And, and I say this to, to people all the time, I have to be in the mood sometimes for Gentle Giant. Like if I'm not in the mood for Gentle Giant, don't put it on. And I love Gentle Giant, but if I'm not in the mood, it doesn't matter what mood I'm in. You put on any Beatle record, solo or otherwise, and I'm in. I'm in in second, like from the opening notes. In fact, this afternoon I was listening to um, uh, Live at Hollywood Wall because I haven't listened to it for a while. I thought, this is really good. Why haven't I listened to this for a while? So I think it was that. And and there's a strong sense of melody, lyrics, harmonies. You know, not to, to sound trite, but the humor. There was always this humor um, under the surface that I really loved. And not just their interviews, but even the like, paperback writer with the Frère Jacques refrain. And I just love all that stuff. So I was, I was kind of hooked at a very young age and it's now part of my DNA and I can't shake it. <laughs>
0: that I find wonderful, to be honest. I think yeah. I told you that I co-own a record shop. Yeah. And you and I, very similar ages, but I see youngsters coming into the shop, teenagers, they're still buying Beatles records. Yeah. It doesn't stop.
2: Did you see the clips when Now and Then came out and there's these young people on TikTok crying? And um my daughter, my my youngest daughter lives in Dublin. There, She works at uh, HMV, sorry, Uh HMV. And um they literally everyone stopped working when they debuted the song on the Thursday at 2 p.m. our time, which was 5 p.m., no, 7 p.m. And she said people were just crying in the store. Like, it was just, and they were young kids, not, not you know, 59-year-old guys. like me, I cried too, but... Yeah, I think the Beatles speak to generations. I I, I think that there, 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 there's a few, like Dylan, the Beatles. Here, anyways, Bowie, for sure. But the Beatles kind of always bring in the young audiences. And, and you know, you go see Paul McCartney live, or Ringo. I just saw Ringo last year. And I'd say a good half of the audience, and they weren't with their parents. They were like these young 20, 25-year-olds just digging, you know, when he's doing boys or digging when he's doing photograph. And and it's heartwarming, really. So they just keep transcend, you know, transcending generation after generation. And as I said, my daughter's 24, and she's a Beatle nut. And she likes, again, other music. And, of course, I have two daughters, one that, eh, Beatles are okay. And one is just absorbed by them, so...
0: I I get what you're saying about the tears when now and then. I I was okay until I saw the video.
2: Oh, yeah. That, yeah, no, that was dramatic. Yeah, that video was so well made, though, wasn't it?
0: It just tugged on so many heartstrings. Oh. You know, when they're looking at each other, when you see them through the ages.
2: I'm with you. And And I also love the fact they started off with the one, two. I don't think the song would have had as much power as it does with that little one, two, and it's yeah. So I, I don't know if I answer your question. I don't know. For me, I just it's it's always just been part of my life and and uh I can't imagine going through life and not having the Beatles part of it, you know. And and it's so funny because everyone just associates me with the Beatles. So it's always like Aaron Beatles. <laughs> so, which is fine. I could be associated with a lot worse, right? So mm-hmm.
0: interview about dark horse artists not Mm. as well as we think they should have what do you think the reason behind that was
2: well i think you know george harrison was still promoting the records and he wasn't in charge of promotion but he was he had his hands in it he was still looking at it from a 1960s model even his own solo career if you look at what he was doing in 74 75 yeah he toured the dark horse album but 75 he put out the u single there was Print ads. He'd send out a promo copies to the stations. He did one interview, which he circulated to radio stations, but he didn't promote it the same way other artists were promoting records in 75 on and on. He catches up in 87 though, with cloud nine. If you look at the difference between him in 87 and in 76, for example, for 33 and a third, it's, it's miles apart. So I don't know that Harrison really fully understood. And he was working with people at A&M records that, okay, let's, let's back up a bit. A&M wanted a solo Beatle. So they've thought, okay, we'll take Dark Horse Records thinking that when George gets out of Apple EMI, he's going to come to A&M. They weren't as devoted to the Dark Horse artists as perhaps they should have been. So I, I think it's in my book where I'm ta- I talked to Derek Green, who was head of, he was working for AM and m and he got assigned Dark Horse. And he said, I remember going to Harrison's house and listening to I Am Missing You by Ravi Shankar. And Harrison said, this could be a hit. And I'm thinking, how the hell do I promote this? Like it It, it was that kind of thing where... Harrison, on one hand, is thinking, this is going to be a monster. And on the other hand, someone's going, really, George? Because I don't even know where to begin with this. And certainly by the time that he goes to Warner Brothers and they're releasing records on A&M still, A&M just throw up their hands and, and just say no, nope, no, nope, no more. So there was that. And I think that, um, you know, bands like Attitudes, had they toured, if they had just done some tours or some interviews, they didn't do any interviews, and and in his book david foster talks about you know they were kind of being cocky they weren't you know we don't need to do interviews well yeah you do you know that's a matter of fact and um jiva certainly was probably the hardest working band on dark horse next to splinter and they they toured with fleawood mac but they were caught in the crossfire once a and m pulled the plug that was it unfortunately they got then they signed to Polydor records for their second and last album but um i think that's what it was in a nutshell and uh, but harrison believed in this stuff and he. He put in a tremendous amounts of money and energy into all the releases up into Dark Horse. And then when he went to Warner Brothers, there was only the three artists that came with them, which was Kenny Burke from The Stair Steps, Splinter, and, and the Attitudes album. And the second Attitudes even had Ringo drumming on it, which didn't help it get any more attention than it, the first album. And Splinter's third and final album, they didn't like it because Harrison brought in a Nashville producer, A songwriter who wrote them two songs for singles, and they were like, ah, this isn't us. And they were really they hated the cover. When I spoke to both of them, they were just so adamant. (laughs) They're just they're like, This is I remember the one guy going, What what moron? No, because what genius would put this out as a cover, (laughs) not touching that, you know. But um, so it's it that's what I think. But but I'm gonna say this about George too. You know, Gontrapo, which is a terrific album, and it he didn't promote it, he didn't do interviews. Wake Up My Love kind of came out and it didn't have a video. It didn't have anything. It just kind of came out and disappeared. And not because it wasn't good, but because it wasn't noted by radio people. and, And you know yourself, Michael, like you're only as big as your last hit. Like if you're not having hits... Radio doesn't care. So if Harrison had gone from, say, from Blow Away on with no hits, they weren't going to play Wake Up My Love. Although they should have because it's a terrific song. And then the second single released in America and Europe was uh, I Really Love You, which was so unlike Harrison. It's not funny. But what should have been a hit, though. Like, it was so unique. But there you go.
0: I totally agree with you the the music on dark horse records was something special i mean one of my favorite albums henry mcculloch mind your own business what an
2: album yeah that that should be up there with the rory gallagher's and that should be up there with uh you know all that kind of bluesy rock and roll and have you ever seen there's a he did a tv show in germany to promote the album uh rockoplast or rockplast fantastic watching him do it live i love i love that album too I, it's one of my Favourite albums just of all time, not just on Dark Horse. Uh, I could listen to every track on that album. It's just a brilliant album.
0: And again, he was, a, you know, ex-member of the Grease Band, Joe Cocker's backing man, an ex-member of Wings.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I wonder how Paul felt about that. That was a good one.
0: Do you know, that's something that's crossed my mind for years. What did he think about George signing an ex you know, an ex-band member that allegedly held a shotgun at Paul McCartney and Linda McCartney's head while they slept?
2: Yeah, Uh, well, an ex-member a guitarist who also complained about not being given the freedom that, you know, so him and I think in one of the interviews, Henry McCulloch says, you know, George and I commiserated about McCartney, although to McCartney's credit, you know, the story for my love when he's doing it in one take and Henry leans over and goes, I decided to change the solo. I was like, Okay. (laughs) it was good solo. I can't help but think there was a bit of a Harrison certainly found humor in signing McCulloch, and I'm sure McCartney had a thing or two to say. That's all, I don't know for sure. It's been lost in time. But but um, Henry McCulloch, during his interviews in his later years, talked a bit about, about Harrison and McCartney, and I think there was a bit of that. I really do. But it, you know what? It was a great album. It should have been out there.
0: And another great album. You mentioned them earlier, Attitudes. Their first yeah. album, you know, Ain't Love Enough. What a song.
2: Yeah, that should have been a monster hit single. That was a single, and it and it it, it doesn't get the radio play. And um, I always I, I was i was talking about Dark Horse the other day, and I said they were kind of the Steely Dan of Star, of Dark Horse. They were this incredibly talented session musicians who get together, and and in hindsight, they were a super band. You got David Foster playing keyboards. You have Jim Keltner on drums. You know, you have Danny Kritchmar. Um, I always pronounce his name wrong, but I'm going to give her a stab. Who you know from from uh, Carol King and Carly Simon and Jackson Browne? These are really big names, and I do think if they had "Ain't Love Enough," should have been that hit. Now, interestingly, Sweet Summer Music was going on to become a hit. If you look at the charts, it entered Billboard at 90, shot up to 60, but then A&M pulled the plug and it went off the charts. When it's reissued a year later on Warner Brothers, it, it, the time had passed, no one really cared. But... um I agree their first album is much stronger than their second album, and some great instrumental tracks on there. I just love it. I think it's like average white band, that kind of stuff, really good music.
0: We've spoken so far really about Dark Horse in the seventies and George's solo records. What are your thoughts about what Danny's doing now with the Dark Horse catalog and the new acts that he's getting on there?
2: I gotta be honest, i I was a bit first of all, I was surprised the first act he signed was Joe strummer, well the, the estate. You know, phony beatomania has been the dust," said Joe. But you know, again, I think Danny's got an ear to this stuff. Should be out there. He's also signed. um, Well, he's got the Leon Russell music, the albums that Leon did um, independently. I think Danny's doing a great job. I I do wish he would kind of re-release the older albums. He has. He's done Stair Steps, Splinter, the Two Shank, uh, One Shankar. So yeah, he's done three or four. Billy Idol surprised me. I know, right? And then, and then a Billy Idol Christmas album to boot. I was like, I, I thought, I, I thought I could hear the Four Horsemen coming down the street. It's interesting to see the Dark Horse label again, and I'm happy. Like it's nice to see it. I get excited. Like I, I, uh, I bought the new Splinter album on record store day, and you know, there it was on Dark Horse again, and it sounds great. Stair Step sounded great. Cat Stevens, um, that's a perfect fit for Dark Horse. That is like just the perfect. Oddly enough. Danny's not releasing his music on Dark Horse. He's still got his own label called Hot, which is Henley on Thames. But um, I'm 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 always I'm curious as to oh, he John Lord too. They've signed the John Lord estate. So I'm always curious to see what he does next. And I was really happy to see the live Ravi Shankar seventy two that had been released on Apple then it was streamed and if you looked at the streaming on spotify it said uh, um George Harrison state so it was so nice to see that on the dark horse label where i do believe it belongs and then um chance of india as well two great albums uh i i i, I love danny i think he's He's a he's got his head in the right place. He's got. And I also think he's a terrific musician. And another artist, that I think this is going to sound really funny when I say this, but I don't. I think if his last name wasn't Harrison, he'd be a lot bigger. I I think that sometimes people think, oh, well, he's just George Harrison's kid. Of course, you have a record deal. Well, you know what? He's putting out quality. I saw him live. He opened up for ELO here. Wow, he was. Impre- I mean, people were walking out buying his albums in droves at the, the merch stand. Uh, he's great. He is super. So uh, good luck to Danny with his new album too. I hope it does well.
0: I get what you say about um, the excitement when you see things on Dark Horse, because there's something about. It's like an Apple label. There's something about that paper label.
2: I love it, and I, I sometimes when I watch a DVD, the Apple logo comes up at first. It just, it, it the, the heart warms. I, uh, yeah, it's hard, and you can't, I can't articulate it well, but it, it it's just. Beautiful, because it's okay to stream. I'm not. A, I'm not big on streaming because I'm. I like the physical. But it was okay to listen to some of the dark horse stuff on streaming channels. But boy, when I got that stair steps album on vinyl again, ah, it's beautiful. It's just, it just that had that inner sleeve and off we go. We're off to the races now, folks. You know, we're good. So more vinyl, Danny. More vinyl.
0: your book dark horse records one thing i should have asked you is where can people
2: get it anywhere you buy your books it's on um, sonic bound is a great publisher they're small they're out of england and um, they make sure amazon has it um, waterstone has it uh, barnes and noble in america indigo in canada every uh, i in fact i've had people telling me it's in an independent store all throughout scotland it's um eason's has it in ireland because my daughter saw it there so it's always nice to have. I said, hey, did you put it front rack? Did you put it in the window? Ah, uh, no doubt. <laughs> but um, it's it's available wherever you buy books, and it's um it's and I'm going to be at the Fest for Beatles conference February the ninth, the eleventh, and I'm going to be autographing books and having them there too. So they're all they can buy it through them too. That you can mail order it. I've signed copies that they can they're selling. So yeah, it's 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 pretty easy, pretty available. You can get it anywhere where fine books are sold.
0: And what's the feedback been like from the fans?
2: You know, I, I don't want, I mean, I'm, uh, my mother would be yelling at me right now. I, I've had really good feedback. I, I'm really fortunate. People have, actually, a number of people have said to me what you said earlier, which is, I'm so glad you didn't get into the, the rumors and the rumor mills and, and you just focused on the records and the music and all that. But people have really been very kind. I got a lovely email today from a guy saying how much he loved the book and and could I, you know. What's next? And he was just so happy to read something about Harrison that didn't involve All Things Must Pass or Cloud Nine. Although I did write about Cloud Nine, but uh, people are people have been extremely kind. of gotten some good reviews. Um, my publisher's happy with it. I guess Beetlefest, they want me there, so I guess it's been good. You know, I, I it's hard for me to I'm not I'm, I'm not listen. I'm Irish background, so it's hard for me to kind of go hey, you know. But I think it's been good. It's been received well. I'd love Harrison's camp to read it and um perhaps offer me a job as an archivist.
0: <laughs> I I think it's a fantastic book. I love every single word and I'm going to I'm going to chase down a hard copy for myself. One last question. I, I I really do thank you for your time and the work you've oh, done on this fantastic this on this fantastic book.
2: What's next? Um well, I just I'm working on two books actually. I'm working on a book about um again I want to f- I'm working on a book about Ringo Starr but I'm focusing on mid 70s to 1980. I-, I think that again here's a period of time roto Daviere Ringo the 4th he had his own Ringo Records label and I guess you can say I'm a bit obsessed by labels but uh I'm proud to say I own every record on Ringo Records as my one collection that's complete. I want to write about Ringo and 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 take it seriously because you know he had his. he was acting he I want to focus on his art, his music, and not not his private life. It's really just looking at his musical career. And the other book I'm working on is a, a Canadian band. There were a Prague rock band called Clatoo. And they had the misfortune of being compared to the Beatles. And people thought they were the Beatles. I say misfortune because there was a lot of anger they when they kind of came out and said, We're not the Beatles. We're three guys from Toronto. Sorry. <laughs> and uh but I'm, I, it's, there's no books about Clatoo. And I've been in touch with all three members and they're very excited about it. So, starting in February, I'm going to start you know, interviewing the band and I've got access to their archives. So, I'm very excited to write the book about Clatoo. I'm a big Clatoo fan. Love their Their first three albums are just second to none in, in terms of Canadian music. So, that's what I'm working on.
0: Do you know? I think you and I might just be brothers from another mother.
2: Boy, <laughs> you're a Clatoo fan. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Isn't Hope great? Isn't Hope a great it's fantastic.
0: album? fantastic. I love, I love. And again, I got into Klaatu because of the rumours that everyone thought they were the Beatles.
2: I did. Me too. I'm absolutely. And I'm going to start the book off with that. But they put out fine albums, didn't they?
0: Yeah. Sub Rose's Subway. I mean, oh. great. great. I've, they're all here somewhere. <laughs> I'm, in the, I'm in the middle of moving everything around.
2: I are for sure... Brothers, I'm doing the same thing. So I, 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 feel your pain. Oh, we got to talk offline sometimes. Because I love Klaatu and I, I, think it's a good, it's an interesting story about, you know, how they kind of. There's a really one very funny story is that when they're mixing the last track on the album Little Neutrino, Jagger would Jagger had the studio booked after them, and he came in early to hear it, and they played the song for him. He looked at the band and just walked out. <laughs> I love that story. It's like no comment. Just give hmm, it up, boys. <laughs>
0: Sometimes I look at you and I know I'm not the only one. Uh-huh. Sleeve Notes brought to you by Toon Media and SoundOnShape.com.